Amen. Thanks, Jared. Good morning, everybody. Um, Thanks. Uh, Jared asked me this morning, um, like, how are you feeling? <laughs> how is the prep? How, like, how are you doing? Um, and I'll be really honest. Like, I stand before you with a whole lot of humility today because I don't feel that I'm about to do this justice. Like, I don't feel like I'm going to um, do it service. Uh, and, and here's why. Uh, before our, we got to the Beatitudes, I've, I've read them enough, you know, enough to say I was familiar. I, I knew I knew them. I knew what they meant. I knew what Jesus was getting at. And then the more time I spent um, reading about it and, and kind of pondering those truths, the more I quickly realized that um, any of Jesus's teachings are uh, in, a, in a silly way similar to Lake Coeur d'Alene. Uh, if you guys have ever, <laughs> I said it was silly, right? Like <laughs> you're allowed to laugh. Uh, the reason it's similar to Lake Coeur d'Alene is for those of that, you, like we, you go swimming in the summertime, right? And so you know when you go down to Tubbs Hill or to the beach and you kind of like got, take your shoes off and you splash in and you're really comfortable and you're like, oh yeah, this is great. And then you quit, you take one step deeper and it goes from like here to here. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, that was fast. Like that got really deep. So you take one step deeper and then all of a sudden it's like up to here. Like, and then you take one step further and it's a 20 foot cliff, right? Into the depths of the waters. And so the Sermon on the Mountain, any of Jesus's teachings are like that. As soon as we begin to probe into them, all of a sudden what we thought was comfortable and we were in control and we knew what we were doing, all of a sudden we're in over our heads. And there's a depth of truth and complexity and meaning that like we could just swim in for hours. So my, my hope for today um, it's like, um, I wanna give you as very little of my opinion as I can. I wanna give you a whole lot of scripture. And I wanna put that before you and let you explore those things. And so what that means is there's gonna be multiple points today where I'm gonna be like jumping around and I'm gonna have some references on the screen and I'm gonna ask you uh, as much as you're able, whether you have a scripture journal or you brought your full Bible to follow along with me uh, because I want you to see these things for yourself. Um, and I want you to have places where you can go yourself to explore because I know that where we're gonna get today, we're gonna take one and a half steps into the lake and we're gonna be up to here. And I want you to enjoy swimming in like the depths of those waters for yourself. And so this is gonna be a lot more than one 30 minute conversation between us. So uh, where we're starting today is we are going to um, we're not gonna dive right into the Beatitudes to start. Last week, Jared did a really phenomenal job of giving us a, a big summary, catching us all back up on what are, like, what's Matthew even about? Where have we been for the months of the fall that we were in Matthew? Kind of catching us back up, giving us big introduction to the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. And I know that I felt personally um, like I've got like a squirrel brain. And so it's just hard for me to remember and to like get into it. And so I found that I, for, by the time I was halfway into this week, I forgot much of kind of the, the context for the Sermon on the Mount. And so partially for my own benefit, but hopefully it helps you also. I just wanna give us a, a bit of a repeat from last week. I find that it's helpful to hear things two or three times from two or three perspectives. And that just gives us a little bit more familiarity. So some of this will feel familiar, but I'm hoping just another touch from another angle will like cement it because it's really important that we have a few basic things cemented before we move forward. And here's why. Last week, the resounding message, the, the big thing, like the one sentence that we hoped we all walked away with was this, that the Sermon on the Mount 
is not your to-do list. It's not your to-do list. Instead, it's a description of the actual community of those already accepted by God through faith in Christ. It's not your to-do list. It's not the moral standard by which you justify yourself before God, but it is a real life description of the family of God, the kingdom of God in a real way. So this is not a list of all the qualities that you need to embody, all the things you need to do perfectly in order to be accepted. Instead, it's a description of who you're becoming. When you're part of the kingdom of God, this is who you are becoming. It's not once you've gotten to this point, you're accepted. It's you're brought into the family first. And now that you're in, this is who you are becoming. But there's tension here. Maybe you feel this also. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount, it's not my to-do list. I couldn't have done that anyways. But aren't I supposed to do it? So I don't have to do it, but I should do it. Okay. It's a description of the actual community of those in the kingdom of God. Cool. But I don't identify with the majority of those things. Does that mean I'm not in the kingdom of God? Will I be more in the kingdom of God when I more embody those things? Right? There's, there's a sincere tension there. I feel it and I wrestle like, so I'm free from the, the law, but I still need to do the law and I want to do the law. And so that's where we're going to spend the first chunk of our time this morning is in that tension. So another word, instead of using the word tension a lot today, I think a more accurate word that helps us grasp this is the word paradox. Some of us are familiar with that already, uh, but a paradox, simply put, it is, um, it's a, a juxtaposition or a contrast. So it's a contrast of two different things, two different ideas that seem contradictory. Two different seemingly contradictory concepts that when they're put together, reveal an unexpected truth. Now, that truth might be hard or impossible to understand or impossible to believe, yet when you actually, like teachings of Jesus, you swim in those contradictions, you realize like the, the, the contrast of those two seemingly opposed ideas actually make a much more full and a beautiful picture. So a quick example of a paradox is this phrase. It is really hard to be myself. Well, Trevor, you are you, right? So you are yourself at all points, at all times, right? Yeah, but it's also really hard to be myself because I find myself acting like someone else most of the time, so then when I'm acting like someone else, I'm not actually me, but maybe me is just acting like someone else, right? So it's hard to be myself. It seems like an impossible statement, and yet we all can really quickly identify with it. That is an example of a paradox. And so for today, we're looking at what I'm simply going to call the performance paradox. This paradox that I'm in the kingdom of God, and so I will embody these things, I don't have to do this list of things. I'm freed from this list and the, the, the law of it. And yet I do want to and should and have to. That's the performance paradox is what I'm gonna call it today. And so I hope that by walking through this today, um, we're all just gonna get a bit more comfortable with that paradox. We'll be able to carry that tension a little bit more comfortably and with a little bit more security. So 
The Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew. It, it, to be frank, is a demanding list of morality. It is a high, high standard of morality. And when we compare ourselves to that list, it's scathing in its condemnation. Especially when Jesus uses these words. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go to hell. But remember, it's not your to-do list. Don't worry. Right? This is the paradox where Jesus on one hand can say you're in the kingdom. You have nothing to worry, my son and my daughter. But if your right hand threatens your place in your, this kingdom, cut it off. It's better for you to lose one thing than for your whole body to go into hell. And it's this confusion. This is why we're spending time here. Because if we don't have some sort of concrete, we're going to blow past this is not your to-do list. And we're going to find ourselves in chapters 5, 6, and 7 carrying the weight of this is what I need to be. We're going to carry the weight of the high, high moral standards of God. So last time I taught about Matthew was November 15th. That was a long time ago. Um, but when we were doing that, I gave you a couple of simple tools. And I found that as I've thought through these things, they've been really helpful for me. So I want to give them back to you as a point of reminder. Uh, if you have one of these ESV journals, well, real quick, if you don't have one, we've got a stack. They're for you. They're for free. They're our gift to you. But if you do have one and you were here November 15th, and if you were paying attention that day, if you turn to page 20, you will see these notes. And they will be up here on the screen. Uh, I gave you four really quick tools. Whenever you come across something that feels like you've just take, taken two steps into the teachings of, of Jesus or some sort of scripture and you find yourselves over your head, here are four simple things you can do that can help orient you and ground you. The first one is to stop. If you find yourself out of your depth, just like pause and think about it. Spend time remembering like what are the themes that the author's developing, right? Ground yourselves to the context around you. Consider, is the author giving me space to wrestle with this? Rather than giving me all the answers, are they letting me ask questions and come to discovery? So part of the way we do that is number two is we look backwards at what has just come before this. And then we also, number three, we look forward to what's coming after it. And here's what that looks like for us today, right? We're on um, Matthew chapter five, which is page 22. This is us. This is preface. This is what we've read over the last uh, October, November, and this is what we've got left. So if this is just introduction, this is the first sentence of Jesus's teachings, we're not going to get it if we only look at this, or if we only look at this. What we really need to do is we need to look back, we need to pause and consider, and then we need to look forward, right? We understand this in light of the whole. And then the beautiful thing is Matthew is right there. And so we understand this in light of this and in light of this, right? So 
That's what we're gonna do. That's why I said we're gonna be flipping around is because I want to give us a really quick tour back through this. It's been months since many of us have read this. So what did we get to in here? And what do we have to look forward to in here, okay? So up on the screen, you'll see a list of places we're going to go exploring together. The very first one is Matthew um, 1, or chapter 1, verse 21. While you're flipping there, please listen to this for one more second. We've just come to the Sermon on the Mount, a high moral standard, a beautiful way of living, and a standard of incredible consequences, right? It's better to cut off your hand than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So what we're trying to answer as we go back and we go forward is I want us to answer, what is the actual message of this sermon? Is Jesus's message, here are the high standards and how you prove yourself to me. Is that his purpose for giving that teaching, okay? So we're gonna ask, what is the message and why is Jesus actually telling us this sermon, okay? So we're gonna look at Matthew chapter one, verse 21. And I'm gonna give you some real quick context here. Remember, the entirety of Matthew is about the kingdom of God. It is about the king who has brought his kingdom on or down to earth. And Matthew chapter one, verse 21 tells us why. Why has the king come? Why has the king brought the kingdom to earth? Well, it's right here. Joseph, this, oh, excuse me, the, an angel is speaking to Joseph and he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. This is the king, this is the hero. You shall call his name Jesus. And if you're here in November, Jesus is a Hebrew, Yeshua, and it is short for God saves. And then the next sentence says, and all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, she will bear a son and they shall call him, his name Emmanuel. And on the next page, it says, which means God with us. So we see on page one, God is with us so that the king will save us, okay? That is the very first page. That is the whole reason that what the king is trying to achieve through his coming. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is all also about righteousness, right? And so we need to ask, like, what is the king's attitude towards righteousness? And so we're gonna go to chapter nine, verses nine, thir nine and 13. So would you flip there with me? This is a... a um, uh, story of Jesus as he's spending time with real life human beings and he's being criticized for who he's spending time with. So I'll just read this to you. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew and Matthew was sitting at a tax booth and Jesus said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed Jesus. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors, many sinners came and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees, the religious rulers, they saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go, learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you flip forward a little bit more to Matthew chapter 21? 
This is 28 and 32, verses 28 and 32. Jesus again is confronted with the religious authority. And they're asking him about, by whose authority do you teach? By whose authority are you walking around? And Jesus, as a way of pushing back on them and asking what their true motivations are, he tells them this, he gives them this question. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first son and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. And the son answers, I will not. But afterward, the son changes his mind and he goes. And then the father goes to the other son and he says the same, go work in the vineyard today. And the second son answered, I go, sir. But then he didn't go. Now, which of the two actually did the will of the father? And the religious leaders said, the first one, the one who said no, but then did it, right? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. So we see in here that Jesus' posture is very clearly to go to the people that are the most messed up. He's not going to those who are already righteous. The king whose name Jesus literally is God saves, whose title is God with us. The king has come in order to save. That is the primary focus of his entire mission, right? That's the context that we are in. But we also need to know, does the king then not care Does the king not care about righteousness? Is he so overwhelmed by the rescue that he just loses all value for morality and righteousness and goodness? Well, we're gonna go to chapter five, verse 17 to 20. And this will sound familiar. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not a smidge will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, whoever upholds the law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we find ourselves back in the paradox, right? God saves. I'm here for the sinners. I'm here to rescue the sick. But you need to be more righteous than the Pharisees, right, to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we find ourselves back in the paradox. And the conclusion for this, or the resolution, I would say, right, here's the beginning. Here's the resolution, the very end, right? We need to understand the whole context. So we're gonna be in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29. This is the last conversation that Jesus has with his followers the day before he dies. So we're in Matthew chapter six, verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. After blessing it, he gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with, my, with you in my Father's kingdom. So we see the resolution to this paradox. It's that Jesus 100% came to save. That was the purpose of his mission. And while he is fulfilling that mission, he does not like slacken or remove any sense of value of righteousness, whether that's personal or societal. He doesn't lose or tarnish or dilute the goodness of his law and his commands just because he is here to rescue us. And the way that it's resolved and the way that we find rest in that tension is because of that final sentence. This is my blood. This is my sacrifice. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So in one sentence, I have a quote by David Platt that just like hangs all of this. Very simply, the gospel of Matthew is about Jesus granting salvation from sin. It is not our achievement of our own salvation. My own words, the king brings the kingdom and he substitutes himself for us in order to rescue us from our sins and in order to give us a new kingdom life. So if the Sermon on the Mount, if the Sermon on the Mount is only Jesus's moral standards that you need to live up to, if that is what it is, if it is your to-do list, does it make sense that page one of his entire story It says, I'm here to save you. And then all throughout the middle, he's saying, you can't save yourselves. I'm here for you. And then it ends by saying, I've given my life for you. Does it make sense that we take this and turn it into our own moral code? But if we know the beginning is God saves and we know the middle is I'm here for you, you cannot save yourselves. And then we get to the teaching and he says, and yet here's the moral code of my kingdom. It is good and right and beautiful and it's unattainable. And I've given myself for you so you can live in it. And you don't have to worry about your place. All of a sudden the Sermon on the Mount makes sense, right? And all of a sudden Matthew makes sense in here because this tells us the same thing and this tells us the same thing. So as we said last week, we don't live into the Sermon on the Mount for our acceptance. This is not our moral standard that we need to live up to in order to be in the kingdom of God because this already happened. This has happened and you're in the kingdom if you are following Christ. And now we get to live into from a place of acceptance, from a place of security, we get to live into those kingdom values. Now with that, if we only look at the Sermon on the Mount as not our to-do list, there's a danger. And that is we become afraid of the Sermon on the Mount. We only see it for its threat to us. I think the way that we live out of a place of acceptance into the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount is we don't live in fear of the Sermon on the Mount, but we live in like desire for it. 
We live in like, we're captivated by the beauty of these standards of goodness. And so it's not something we're really glad, like that just doesn't apply to us. We're glad the consequences don't apply 100%, but we find ourselves like drawn to them. And so what I wanna do is I wanna tell you really quickly about who God's kingdom people are becoming. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, if, if it helps you to flip through this really quickly, I'm just gonna put this in my own words in one paragraph, chapters five, six, and seven. And I want us to desire it in a deep way that says, God, thank you. Thank you that this happened. And now I'm really excited to give myself to becoming who you freed me to be. Chapter five, and I'm just, I'm, some of these words you'll see in here, some of them are my own, but if it helps you to listen, just listen. If it helps you to skim, you can skim. Those who are in God's kingdom are becoming poor in spirit. They're capable of mourning and they're capable of gentleness and littleness because they know the terror of sin in the world. And yet they also know the goodness of it and they hunger and they thirst for goodness. And they have hope in the righteous mercy of God. They are a community that is pure of heart. They fight for peace rather than pride. They stand courageously for what is right. They do not bend nor dilute God's goodness. They're a community that visibly displays all of the best qualities of God's kingdom. This is a place <clears throat> where anger does not destroy, anger does not insult. This is a place where offenses are quickly reconciled and forgiven. This is a community where no person is used as a mannequin for our pleasure. This is a place where there is no leering, there are no double takes, there are no innuendos. This is a place where there is only loyalty, devotion, self-sacrifice, and secure, immovable commitment. This is a place where there are no double words, there's no false intentions, there's only honest, trustworthy talk and speech. There's generosity, there's compassion, even in the worst of abuse and conflict. When others are blinded by greed, anger, or pride, God's people see truth, they rest in the Father who secures them. They're generous with all that they have, even to those that the world would quickly write off as worthless. Do I need to keep going? It's good, right? We go through this and, and if we are like awake at all, and if we're freed from the, the consequence of not being that perfection, all of a sudden we find our appetites like wetted and we desire it, right? And so, if we only look at the Sermon on the Mount, whew, I don't have to do it. Like we're in danger of losing the beauty of what it actually looks like to live into that reality, right? To embody that as God's kingdom. And it doesn't come without cost. It doesn't come without effort, but it does come with absolute safety and security. This is important because this is our paradox. Again, we find ourselves back in the paradox. It's not a list of what I need to do, but Jesus is very clearly saying these things are important, right? So we're back in that paradox. And my goal again with this is I want you to want those things, not be afraid of them, but to want them. Now, I hope that we are at least in a small way beginning to feel more like a sense of grasp of this paradox, the tension between uh, performance and freedom, right? 
So now, I think we could spend more time there, but I also want to get into the Beatitudes, even if it's just an inch. And so we're going to get back into the Beatitudes. We're going to move into poor in spirit. And we're going to remember this is not the high moral standard that makes us in or out. This is a beautiful moral standard that we're excited to live into. This is qualities of God's people that they're being made into their qualities of the kingdom. So um, Jared touched on the word blessed last week. You'll see in the Beatitudes, we said this for the call to worship. So I'm not gonna read it again. I think we're, many of us are familiar, it's on our tongues. But this word blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, blessed, uh, Jared helped us to see how um, Jesus' use of it in this context uh, is, is actually very distant. It's very disconnected from how we typically understand blessed within especially our modern context. There's significant disconnect because our, our common assumption is that those who are blessed are the ones who are in God's favor and the way that he displays his favor upon them is either by making their life easy or meaningful, or he, he helps all everything they put their hand to flourishes and they're successful. And what we naturally do with that is we then look around us and either we see people who we say are doing well and we assume God's favor. Or we look at our own lives and when things are going well, we assume God's favor. And then when things aren't going very well, we assume God's displeasure. And that brings us right back to the paradox, right? God, am I out? Am I out now? Did I do something wrong? Because your favor is gone. All of a sudden my business is going poorly. All of a sudden I'm experiencing a divorce. Are you gone from me? So we have to ask. Like, I think Jared did a really good job of just reminding us that in this setting, Jesus is not giving us if-then statements. If you do this, then I'll give you this. He's saying, here's who I'm for and here's who I'm giving myself to. I think it's important that we look at the historical context that Jesus is in front of a real life group of people. Who is he calling blessed? Who are the real life guys in a circle or the crowds? Who is he speaking to that he's calling blessed? These are Jews under Roman oppression. They're real life people who are marginalized. They're marginalized socially. They're marginalized economically. Their religion is poo-pooed and dismissed. And so he is in front of people who are literally mourning, people who are literally poor, people who are literally meek or small in the world. And he says, you're blessed. I'm here. The kingdom is for you. He doesn't give them if-then statements. He doesn't give them a bunch of commands. He says, hi, my name is Jesus. God saves I'm here for you, right? And so as we get into this, we're only gonna get through the first beatitude, but I think it's important again that we remember blessed is a little bit different, that Jesus' use of the word blessing here is not here's how I'm gonna shower you and fix all your problems in the, the ways that you anticipate or want, but he's saying while you're poor, while you mourn, while you're small, like I'm here. The kingdom is for you and the kingdom is blessing you and I am giving you good things. So as we go into this first line, poor in spirit, uh, this is where we're gonna spend the rest of our time. And I think it's just worth recognizing that this is the first one, right? Jesus sat down and he called his disciples and he said, blessed 
are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, these are not a ladder that you need to work your way through as a sort of progression, but there definitely is a sort of progression here. There's a progression of thought that Jesus is giving us. And so understanding poor in spirit will help frame the entire um, next set of, of blessings. So uh, here is what we're gonna do. Uh, poor in spirit doesn't have a direct New Testament um, parallel. Poor in spirit is not something that's used all over the place, that we have a lot of clear language or identical uses that we know what it means, but we do have some other similar uh, uses in the new, both the New Testament and the Old Testament, and that's where we're gonna go to look for context, okay? So um, I'm gonna give you some biblical touch points for poor in spirit, and then I'm gonna do my best to kind of open that up for us, okay? So poor in spirit, the very first parallel within the New Testament is Luke chapter six. Uh, so if you only have this, sorry, you'll just have to listen. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Luke chapter six, and it is verse 20. So this is actually, while you're turning there, this is a, a parallel teaching. Um, so this is, you'll notice lots of similarities. <clears throat> so uh, this p possibly could be Luke's recording of the very same teaching. Um, but either way, it has a very helpful parallel uh, context that can help us understand what Jesus was getting after. So this is Jesus and he's with a multitude and he's with disciples. And he says this, chapter six, verse 20, Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now and you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son, and man, Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So you can see this is uh, in many ways a parallel teaching, but there's some distinction, right? Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Whereas Luke just kind of like cuts to the punch and he says, blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you when you're hungry. Blessed are you when you weep. And so commentators and people that try to uh, core, like, um, reconcile these two things, they'll often say that Luke's uh, presentation of this is the social gospel or the social beatitudes and, and Matthew's is the spiritual, right? Because in some ways, Luke is safe because it's poor and it's simple. In some ways, Matthew is safe because it's poor in spirit. I don't actually have to be poor. I can just be poor in spirit. In some ways, Luke's is really dangerous, right? Because it's blessed are the poor. So what does that mean if I'm not poor, right? What does that mean if... Like I have a way of influencing the people around me who might be poor. In some ways, Matthew is far more dangerous. What if I'm poor in like physically, but in, in posture and humility, like I by no means am poor and humble, right? So they both are safe in their own ways, but they're also both very dangerous in their own ways. And so we have to be careful, right? Remember the whole context thing? We read this in light of this, in light of this. It's really helpful to have both of these because we understand that Jesus probably is not only saying, blessed are the poor in spirit alone. 
It's probably also not saying blessed are the poor in, in socially alone. Like there's a combination, which really shouldn't surprise us, right? Who here has struggled financially and that's affected you spiritually? Who here has been well off financially and that's affected you spiritually? We are integrated human beings and our, like what is around us and what is in us go hand in hand. So I don't think there's any sort of apparent contradiction here. Or while there's apparent contradiction, this is again a paradox. And when you get into the teachings of Jesus, they're safe this far and then they're confusing this far. And then all of a sudden they're beautiful when they're this far, right? So uh, poor in spirit parallels. We have Luke giving us the social word. Blessed are the poor. Luke actually uses a word that's more than just poor. Um, I don't remember the Greek word, but there's a, a commentary by Bruner where I'm getting this from. But um, poor actually means like impoverished, hand to mouth, destitute. This isn't just like, you know, like it's going to be a rough week, but I'll get by. This is like, unless there's intervention, I'm going to starve. Like this is absolute poverty that the words Luke is using. So Luke helps us see that Matthew is presenting something about poverty, true need. We understand that physically. We don't often understand it spiritually, but Luke is helping us to see this is destitution. This is going to someone with open hands and saying, unless you do something, I'm screwed. So Luke helps us to see that aspect, right? Now, um, the next one I'm gonna point to is Matthew 19. I think this is a really beautiful illustration of both of these points, the Luke side of things and the Matthew side of things, of social poverty and spiritual poverty. So this is Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. So this is a, a real life interaction that Jesus has with a human being. And you'll notice exactly what we're talking about today. That this young man is experiencing, like there's, there's a correlation between his uh, finances and his spiritual health. There's a correlation between how he's approaching God. And <clears throat> I'll just read it. I think it'll jump off the page to you. Behold, a man came up to Jesus and he said, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the young man said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father, your mother, love your neighbor as yourself. A high moral code, right? And this is the young man's response. <clears throat> All of these I've kept, I'm doing great. What do I still lack? What's the next step? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess, give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And the young man heard this and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, simply, this is a question that I think is um, identical to what we're looking at in poor in spirit. This is a young man who went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. We see that there was potentially a, an integration of his material wealth and what his perceived spiritual wealth, 
right? There was potentially a misunderstanding because he came up to Jesus and said, teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? I'm doing great. I'm doing something right. Look at my pockets. What's the next thing I need to do to earn my way into eternity? And Jesus, rather than correcting, like he responds with, um, in some ways, just like genius, like he gets cuts right to the heart. And he says, basically, like this thing that like you, you assume, like this position of standing, you need to give it away. You need to approach me with need. And you can see what Jesus is doing is Jesus says, go sell all that you have and follow me. But there's a lot more going on here. He's, Jesus isn't saying like your wallet's your problem. Jesus is saying, you're not coming to me with need. You're coming to me and saying, hey, I've already got my passport stamped. What's the next step? I've already earned my way in. What's the next step? And Jesus basically says, unless you're poor in spirit, unless you're coming to me, if you're justifying yourselves by a high moral code and not letting me rescue you, what can I do for you? If you're holding yourself accountable to a moral code and not letting me rescue you, if you are not aware of your need, how can I help you? Go, sell all that you have, come to me in need and follow me. And the man goes away and he protects his feelings of wealth and security. So I think we can pretty quickly begin to understand what is poor in spirit by understanding what poor in spirit is not. Right? Poor in spirit is not going to God and saying like, hey, I've done this, I've done this, I'm doing this. Like, what's next? What you got for me? Like, this is recognizing that he's, the king is here to save. That's good news. And we get to rest in that. and We get to pursue the beauty of his kingdom. Now, the last one, there's one more um, point in here that I think is really valuable. This is in Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 66. So as you're turning there, uh, we've seen two things so far. Luke chapter six is there's this sense of, of true desperation. I need intervention. I am poor. And then there's also the sense of not having self-righteousness, not assuming our way into the kingdom of heaven. And there's another component I want us to see in Isaiah chapter 66. And this is verses one through two. Now in Isaiah, Isaiah is a very long book. There's a lot going on. Uh, this is a book of prophecy, uh, so it both applies to uh, people in a specific time, but it's also kind of forecasting into the future. And so I'm not going to give you a lot of context, um, but this is very relevant to what we're doing. So I'm just going to read this, chapter 66, verses 1 through 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? And he says, all these things, heaven, earth, all these things my hand has made. And so all of these things came to be, declares the Lord. He said, I made them. And then he says, this is the one, this is the person to whom I will look. He who is humble. He who is contrite. Contrite meaning um, remorseful, aware of guilt, repentant is probably the best word. So he who is humble and repentant in spirit and trembles at my word. So obviously there's more context around there, but God essentially is saying like, what could you do for me? Look around, all of heaven and earth, I've made those things. What would you bring to me? The one I'm looking for is one who's humble, 
one who's repentant, one who listens to my word and trembles and obeys my voice. And so we're beginning to see this more full picture of poor in spirit. We're beginning to see that there's true poverty and need. We're beginning to see that is not assumed self-righteousness, not following the checklist, but it's coming to God with humility, coming to God with repentance and listening to his voice. So to be poor in spirit simply is to be needy. It's to be aware of our need that's been present all along. This has been there. And so we're just becoming aware of it. And it's this honest awareness and it's an assessment in the presence of God. Because when we only compare ourselves to the people around us, it could look pretty good, right? A rich young man, he'd been looking around at all the people around him and he thought he was doing great because he was not aware of himself in the presence of God. He wasn't aware of himself in the righteousness of God. And so the Sermon on the Mount, if we approach the Sermon on the Mount as our moral standard, we're becoming the rich young man. We're saying, God, what do I need to do to gain eternity? And we're approaching Sermon on the Mount with that posture. So if we are rich in self, if we're rich in self before God, then we're incapable of receiving his rescue. That is ultimately like poor in spirit, is not to be rich in self, but to be poor in spirit, to be humble and repentant before God, aware of his goodness, aware that his name is God saves and he's here for us. And so we don't need to carry our own weight. He's here for us. Now I wanna bring this to a close with some last thoughts. One, you would think that being poor in spirit would be really crummy, right? Living your life constantly aware of your failures, constantly aware that you're in need, constantly aware that you have nothing to offer. That sounds rough. And you would think that it would be a sad way to live. And yet within this paradox of Jesus's teachings, it's actually beautiful because to be truly poor in spirit isn't to like whip yourself and talk about how horrible you are. It's not to hate yourself. To be poor in spirit is your awareness of yourself in the presence of God. So it's to be so aware of God or to be aware enough of God that you see him as beautiful, that you're living in awe of how good he is, that when you see yourself, you're quickly, you quickly go to the beginning of the story, God saves. And you quickly go to the middle of the story where he says, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for you. And you quickly go to the end of the story that says you're covered by my blood. And so to be poor in spirit is the best way to live because rather than trying to like figure out where do I stand, am I in, am I out, you have absolute freedom and you have the beauty of God in front of you at all times. I think something we're feeling in terms of uh, application, I wanna put some bones on this or put some, some meat on these bones before we close. Uh, I've, I've had so many conversations um, about my own life and, and with you guys about your lives, about COVID and the dysregulation that's come from it. And the sense that like, man, I just, I'm really not, my spiritual disciplines are off. I'm struggling reading the Bible. I'm, I'm struggling spending time praying and in community. Like, I think that's across the board. I've, I've had that conversation a million times and it's real, like it's a real life thing. But here's how being poor in spirit by leaning into being transformed, into being poor in spirit. Again, this isn't your to-do list, 
but this is something that's beautiful and good, and it's a good way to live. Um, we want to be poor in spirit in how we approach real life, right? So if we know that we are um, dysregulated, we're not doing the things we want to, we're not doing those spiritual habits, here's what it looks like to be the rich young ruler, okay? God, I'm really sorry. I haven't been praying very much. I haven't been in community. I know I haven't been reading, but like, I know it's important. I know you value it. I know that's important to being part of your kingdom. So don't worry, I'm gonna get it. I'll get it. Next week, I'm gonna start the new plan. I'm gonna commit to new community. I'm gonna do these things. I'm gonna like develop all the right plans because God, I'm gonna like, I wanna show you I'm in. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, right? And then the, the unfortunate thing is if we got to that successfully, if we got there successfully, where we'd be left at is, God, I've done all the things. I've done my prayer. I've done my Bible study. I've done my community. I've done my service. What's next? What must I do to get eternal life? That's where we go if we answer our problems and our, 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 like, our, the dysregulation of our lives if we go, approach it with the rich young ruler, right? But if we approach the dysregulation of our lives as poor in spirit, and we see the beauty of those things, we know it's good, I want those things. There's a simple attitude adjustment, right? When we fail, it's like, God, I'm aware. I'm aware that I'm a, like, I have failed in these ways. It's a good thing I was poor in spirit. I wasn't surprised by that. Like, I, was, I was expecting to not do this very well. God, thank you. Like, thank you. Like, help me to see your beauty. I wanna give myself to this. And then when we fail, I'm not really surprised. God, thank you that you've covered me. I wanna give myself to this again. It's beautiful. I know that these things change my life. And then when we do them well, we say, God, thank you for being gracious with me. Thank you for letting me experience your goodness. And then when we do them poorly, again, like, <laughs> we've got a pretty safe bottom here. Of, God, thank you. I needed you from the start. I was impoverished from the start. I was impoverished in the middle and I was impoverished at the end. Thank you. Dallas Willard has this quote that I think carries us home in this. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. All over the New Testament, especially the Apostle Paul is constantly writing, like train yourselves, work hard, pursue the end goal, like strive for the finish line because grace is not opposed to effort. Grace isn't opposed to trying. Grace is not opposed to being before God in humility and saying, God, I wanna do it again. I wanna do it again. I wanna do it again. Thank you for carrying me. Grace is opposed to saying, I'm gonna run so hard and so fast and so strong that I can go, God, what's next? What else do I have to do? And he's gonna say, go and sell all that you have and then come to me with need. This requires long-term planning and it requires short-term decisions. Effort in following Christ, the paradox of those things doesn't happen by itself. If we only look at the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and say, I'm so glad I don't have to do those things. I'm so glad that I'm just going to become a kingdom person. And then we twiddle our thumbs and watch Netflix. <laughs> Nothing's gonna happen. You're gonna stay stuck and you're gonna stay stuck, covered by Christ, safe in him, but you're gonna stay stuck. And so he's offering us opportunity to live into a better way while we're secure the whole time. And if you stop growing and you kind of plateau, he's gonna cover you. And if you go backwards, he's gonna cover you. And if you go forwards, he's gonna cover you. But it also requires effort 
and diligence and striving. My last thing is I want to be recognized that being poor in spirit very much has to do with our relationship to God. It has to do with our relationship to ourselves, but it also has to do with our relationship to others. This has been recently coming to bear in my own life in new ways as I've, I've dwelled in this and enjoyed this. Because we have the choice of dying to ourselves. Um, I know that my patterns and my tendency is when people come at me with any form of accusation or discomfort, my pattern is I like to blame. Like, no, well, if you hadn't done this, I like to blame people. I like to defend myself. Well, it's because I did this. Like, I did this because of that, right? I blame others. I defend myself. And when, I, when people accuse me of anything, I get really inconvenienced. Like, I don't really want to deal with this. You're really hard. So most recently this past week, I was in a moment where I was feeling accused. And I blamed, <laughs> and I defended, and I, I felt inconvenienced, and all the same patterns were there. And in the middle of it, because I've been abiding with Christ, his voice came to me. And because I've been in this, and he says, Trevor, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. And it was like, oh yeah, I am pretty crummy. Like I'm doing all these shifty things and I do have freedom. God, thank you. Like I don't have to defend myself. I need to apologize. Like I need intervention. God was calling me into a more beautiful way of living. He was calling me to humility. He was calling me into discipline, into effort. It hurt. It hurt to put down all the defenses as best I could and apologize. But it was good. Now, normally what we do um, is we will pray and then we'll introduce communion. Um, Band, I would love for you guys to come up. Uh, I just want to introduce communion first and then pray with us. Um, here's why. Do you remember uh, at the very beginning, I said, um, <clears throat> I quoted Jesus where he says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to lose one member than for you to end up in hell. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And then, in the middle of this end, we're talking about the fact that if you do well, you're covered by Christ. If you do poorly, you're covered by Christ. If you're stagnant, you're covered by Christ. I want you to know that over the course of your life, you will never achieve perfection. You'll never achieve perfection. I'm not super interested, and I hope none of us are, of playing the game of trying to figure out which sins of ours has Jesus's blood covered? Which ones has he covered? How long can they be present in your life before he covers them? How much time does it take for you to overcome them before he covers them? How many repeat offenses will he cover, right? There are these lines that we kind of draw in chapter 5. If your eye threatens you, pluck it out, right? It's better than to go into hell. Like, that is the consequence, the true life consequence of our sin, but I want to remind us of chapter 26. Because chapter 26 says, this is my blood of the covenant. It's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the consequences of a 
a not following the moral standards is hell. And what we're told at the end is Christ the King who came to save us literally did that for us. And so if you have any self-speech towards you, like self-speech internally, that hears the condemnation of Christ in any of these passages that says, if your hand would threaten you, cut it off. It's better that you end up, or it's better than you end up in hell. So in any time, like there is sin before you, if you are covered in Christ, this is where he becomes immensely beautiful because that consequence didn't go away. He met that consequence. When your hand deserved to be cut off, his hand was cut off. When your eye needed to be plucked out, his eye was plucked out. When your life needed condemnation in hell, he took it for us. That's what we celebrate with communion. This is the blood of my covenant. And it was given for the sins of many. Would you pray with me? Father, you're good. You are good. And there is like depth and confusion as we approach like the eternal nature of our sin and your salvation. And yet what you extend to us from page one is rescue. And what you give us all throughout is rescue, rescue, rescue. And we see your beauty and your high moral standards. And we see that being poor in spirit is the first step of coming to you with empty hands and receiving the fact that anything we ever could do right, you've already done for us. Anything we ever could do wrong, you've already taken the penalty for. God, walk with us this week. Help this to be real for us. We love you. Amen.